I'm Father Mitch Packle, and welcome to Scripture and Tradition, where we talk about the Word of God that He's given us. And today we will continue to look especially at the indignities and pain suffered by our Lord Jesus during His crucifixion. We want to connect that with the way victims of abuse can encounter Jesus at the level of the same suffering or similar suffering. And they can also meet not only his suffering, but they come to meet Jesus' power to heal because of their shared experiences of humiliation and pain. Now, of course, if you have any questions or comments related specifically to today's topic, we invite you to be part of the show by calling us uh, during the live broadcast, which is at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. If you are in North America, you can call 1-800-221-9460. 1-800-221-9460. That doesn't work outside North America, but if you are elsewhere, you can still call. The number is country code 1, area code 205 271 2980. So 205-271-2980. Or you can also send us questions by email, writing to scripture and tradition at EWTN.com. And of course, you can follow us and participate with the show on YouTube. All right, so we are continuing on in my book which is called Wheat and Tares. And we're going through chapter 6. If you want a copy of Wheat and Tares to follow along, it's called Wheat and Tares. And uh, it's called Restoring the Moral Vision of a Scandalized Church. This book is still available at EWTN's Religious Catalog. Just go online to EWTNRC.com. It is item number 81098. And for today's discussion, we are starting on page 136. So let's go on here. Now, first of all, as far as we, we talked about the way of the cross last time. And now there's the arrival at the place of the crucifixion. All the Gospels agree that it's called the place of the skull. The Aramaic word for that is well known, Golgotha. In Latin, it was called Calvary, Calvary. Um, so that's, that's the difference when you see the two in the Gospels. And as we read in Luke chapter 23, verse 33, when they came to the place which is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and one on the left. You can see the, the same information given in Matthew 27, verse 33 and 38. Mark 
15, 22, and 27, and John 19, 17, and 18. The gospel, all four Gospels are consistent on this. And by the way, one question people have had over the centuries, why was it called the Skull Place? There was, there developed a tradition that Adam and Eve had been buried there. And it was more of a symbolic explanation, not an historical one. Uh, the idea was that when the earthquake happened and the earth cracked open, and by the way, when you go to Calvary, you can see this crack that was made in that stone of Calvary right there on top, all the way goes down. And you can examine it as it goes down. The idea was that the blood that Christ shed on the cross would go down to the crack to the bones of Adam. And the idea would be that his salvation reaches to Adam on that physical level. And that's a symbol, but that's also why some of you may have some older style crosses. And on the bottom, you might see a skull and a crossbones. Those are supposed to symbolize the bones of Adam being redeemed by Christ, the new Adam on the cross. Just something that was uh, there. The, the reason that they called it that in ancient times is that it is a chunk of solid limestone and it looks like a skull. That's why they called it that, okay? So this is um, uh, very important. And then we see after that a number of details. Now the Gospels, as you should expect, are going to emphasize different details, probably because they knew some of these details and other gospel writers didn't. And they wanted to highlight the message, uh, you know, through emphasizing some details rather than others. So we'll go through these as we start off. Now we see how St. Mark and St. Matthew both say that the, auth the soldiers had offered Jesus a drink of wine. Uh, Matthew 27, verse 34, they offered him wine to drink mingled with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And Mark says, wine mingled with myrrh. Now, what is going on here? This was actually an act of mercy on their part. The bitterness of the myrrh mixed in the wine was itself an ancient painkiller. They're actually trying to help reduce the pain. But when our Lord tastes it, he rejects it. Now, on one hand, this is the fulfillment of Psalm 69, verse 21. Uh, many of you who are reading the Liturgy of the Hours might come across this psalm, and we will hear it a number of times during uh, Lent and Holy Week. But in Psalm 69, verse 21, it says, They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. 
Now, the, the psalmist there is someone suffering tremendously. And in his perspective, this is a mockery. But this, there's another element going on besides the fulfillment of that passage by giving our Lord sour wine mixed with um, the gall or myrrh. Um, the idea is that Christ refuses that drink so he can fully embrace the suffering. He doesn't want to mitigate it. He came in order to suffer. Remember how we began this chapter by citing Isaiah 53, that he has borne our sicknesses and by his suffering we are healed and by his wounds we are healed and by his sufferings he removes our sin. He embraces all of that pain and faces it head on in order to be able to reduce our pain and heal us. And this is why we come to him. That passage in Isaiah, which is cited a number of times in the New Testament as well, of course, it is precisely in Christ embracing his suffering that he is able to heal us. And because he is God, he's not just another one of us. He's fully human. But he's not just another human. Rather, he is God and man. And in his manhood, he, can he has the suffering, can embrace it. In his infinite, infinite divinity, he is able to have that heal an infinite number of people. There's no limit to the number of folks who can be healed by his pain. That's why we come to this. Now, there are a number of ways in which this is applicable to people in our own society. Those of you, like myself, who grew up in the 1950s and 60s can remember that our society took a horrible change for the worst when it embraced a drug culture and the increasing popular acceptance of the role of drugs in life to numb our pain has even become part of law. In some states, they have reduced the penalties or removed the penalties for many drugs, not only marijuana, but many other drugs as well, because, I mean, they don't want people to go to jail for that, and I don't either, but to what happens when the law gets changed and the, the decriminalization of drug abuse becomes accepted, then people think, well, it's legal, so it is okay. It is maybe even good. And we have seen truly millions have died because of drug abuse. We, just in the last three years, as our southern border has been opened up, the drug cartels have exported so much fentanyl 
that about 100,000 people, slightly more or less, a year are dying from that drug poisoning. And again, it's not something that's just a statistic I hear. It's happened within my own family. And this and many, obviously many of your families, this is a horrendous thing and a very odd thing, Jews, just to say on the side point, who sells a product that kills 100,000 of your customers a year? There's something more nefarious than just the drug use going on. These cartels are up to something worse. And the government of China that supplies the fentanyl is part of that. But that's another issue. But what we have to see is that the drugs almost inevitably enslave people. Even the use of something like marijuana becomes a means by which people lose motivation and they prefer to be high rather than to be responsible for their lives and behavior. Now, as you know, this book is trying to deal with the sex abuse crisis that has occurred in the Catholic Church. And very frankly, many of the victims of sexual abuse, whether by clergy or more commonly by teachers in the public schools and other people, and even more commonly within families, those victims of sexual abuse frequently try to use drugs to drown that pain, to cover it up, to hide it from themselves. This is a very serious thing. They're trying to deal with the emotional pain that people they trusted, again, whether it be clergy, school teachers, or family members that did the abuse, that emotional pain they tried to cover. And they have a tremendous amount of suffering because of the drug abuse. And it's precisely here, and this applies to anybody who's dealing with alcoholism or any other type of drug abuse for any reason at all. This is where Jesus Christ, our Lord, wants to meet us. As he rejects the wine mixed with myrrh, he rejects the uh, use of the alcohol and the drug to kill his pain. This is where we can meet Jesus on the cross when we're dealing with drug abuse. Everybody in Alcoholics Anonymous and the other 12-step uh, programs can meet Jesus precisely here. It's not just God as you choose to con conceive him. It needs to be God as he presents himself. And he presents himself not as some vague, mushy kind of God just as is softly loving everybody. He presents himself as the Lord God who rejects the pain-killing power of, of this drug and alcohol in order to redeem us from our pain. That's the real God we need to meet. And this is something that those who are in suffering from drug abuse and can find that Jesus meets them, and they can enter spiritually into a relationship with him. And this is something that's extremely important. And the other thing, too, drug addicts and alcoholics, 
typically find it very difficult to say no to a drug. It's hard. There's nothing simple about it. Just, just say no. Well, it's not that easy. And it's coming to meet Jesus as he refuses the drug offered him while he's nailed to a cross. This is also a very important part of this process of finding Jesus to help us. There are some other areas too. And one of them is that a lot of people who have been sexually abused frequently are looking to deal with their abuse by engaging in compulsive sexual behavior themselves. And they get into various kinds of sexual sins that uh, they have with other people uh, or, you know, uh, or alone and so on. And no matter what the addictive behavior might be, it is important to meet Christ at that moment and that his refusal of what could become a bad habit, this is something that he can help including in helping them to turn away from especially illicit and compulsive sexual behavior. It's very important to turn to him in those circumstances so that they can also learn to integrate in a, in a way that makes a person whole. The importance of their sexuality, that's a great thing. It's a great gift. But compulsive use of it is very destructive of the psyche as well as of their social relations. And again, no matter what the compulsion might be, meet Jesus saying no to that, that wine mixed with myrrh. So that in that, you say, Lord, I don't know how to stop what I'm doing. No matter what the compulsion, I need the grace that you've won for me by your saying no. Help me in this and strengthen me so that I can overcome this by your grace. This is absolutely essential. All right, let's take a break. We'll come back and take a look at the next part of Christ's suffering where he is stripped and hung on the cross. So please stay with us. Welcome back. Now, the next part of this that I want to address is when Jesus is stripped of his garments and hung on the cross. Uh, there's um, the, uh, a station, of course, for that. And uh, when you are in the Holy Sepulchre Church, you can see the outside of that station. Usually it's closed because uh, of difficult access, but um, the stairway is very, very steep. But uh, this is a very important thing. It's important to note that none of the Gospels actually describe 
the act of crucifying Jesus. They never say that, they just say that he was crucified. The reason was the ancient people were very well acquainted with crucifixion. It was done frequently enough um, by the Romans. Um, they done in very public places. They, they didn't you know, go behind a prison wall to do it. They wanted people to see this is your punishment if you are a rebel. Um, but we can see some of the gruesome ta uh, details in the gospel. And the, the, if you look online, there is a, uh, there was another man, a Jewish man who had been crucified and you can still see the nail in his feet. You know, the, 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 that's still, they couldn't pull the nail out uh, from the corpse. So they buried him with the nail in it. And if you look that up, uh, online, you can see photographs of that. And it's the only one who actually mentions the use of the nails is St. Thomas in John chapter 20, verse 25. After the other disciples had told Thomas, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and place my finger in the mark of the nails, and place my hand in his side, I will not believe. So that's how we know that they use nails. Thomas mentioned it, he was well aware. Otherwise, it's not mentioned. Another very important detail is that the soldiers had stripped uh, Jesus of his clothes. That's in all four Gospels. All four of them mentioned it. Um, for instance, we'll cite Matthew 27, verse 35. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Now, this is something that we see mentioned um, in a more detail in St. John's Gospel. In John 19, verse 23 to 24, John, who had stood there at the cross as the beloved disciple, uh, he wrote that when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and made four parts, one for each soldier. So now we know there are four soldiers. Also his tunic, but the tunic was without seam, woven from top to bottom, which is more difficult. It's easier just to sew pieces together. It was so uh, woven from top to bottom, presumably by Our Lady. So they said to one another, let us not uh, tear it but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture. They parted my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Now, St. John is quoting Psalm 22, verse 18. They divide my garments among them, and for my raiment they cast lots. I uh, one time had a Jewish student in my Old Testament class, and when we were studying this, that psalm, she said, when did you Christians put that in there? And I said, we didn't. In fact, I had her look at the Hebrew text, that it's very old Hebrew. It's, you know, ninth century at least. And it's, this is the same psalm that we will hear later on in, as we go through this chapter. Jesus quoted that psalm himself when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's from that same psalm. And he quotes it 
as it is being fulfilled. And think about that a second. The Roman soldiers said, hey, the Jewish people have a, a, a poem, a psalm, and it says that we should divide the garments. No, they didn't read the psalms. They weren't Jewish. Uh, as a matter of fact, they may not even have been actual Roman citizens. They were probably from uh, Spain. For the, the legion that was stationed in Jerusalem had a lot of Spanish soldiers in it. They came from you know, the ancient Spaniards uh, that lived over there. And so they had no clue about Psalm 22. They were not trying to help fulfill that prophecy. They just did what soldiers do and inadvertently fulfilled that verse. This is very important to note that they had done it. Uh, and it would be the same as that verse in Psalm 69 that they mixed you know, poison in my wine. The Roman soldiers who gave our Lord the wine mixed with myrrh or gall had not read Psalm 69 either, the same soldiers. It's important to see that they were doing what they did with no reference to the Old Testament. This is something that they just did and fulfilled the, the, that passage. Now, this is also a place where people who have experienced abuse can meet our Lord, having your clothes stripped off of you in public is a very shameful thing. And the Jewish people in particular were very, very uncomfortable with public nudity. They did not like that. The Greeks, they, they did their sports with no clothes on and stuff. They didn't bother them so much. But the Jewish people really found that very offensive. And it's filled with a lot of shame. This is something that so many of the victims of sexual abuse or people who have been raped, men and women, especially women, of course, but sometimes men who are raped, are often, you know, adding their suffering to the public shame and humiliation of their, their clothes being torn or taken from them. And in the case of the clergy, you know, that they, they, these people who were, uh, you know, supposed to be trustworthy had done that and violated the personal modesty of their victims, as do anybody who sexually abuses another, in particular minors. Young people you know, have a, a natural sense of modesty and they can get talked out of it and have experiences of that kind of abuse. Sometimes their photographs are taken and shared with other people. This is part of the shameful things that happen to young people that are being trafficked. Again, another problem at the southern border is human trafficking, especially of young people, but of adult women too. And their pictures are on the internet and people are looking at them for pornographic reasons. And this is something that they can uh, experience as uh, tremendous shame. 
uh, as they go through this. Now, this is an element where the victims of sexual abuse, whether the clergy abuse or the other adults who've abused them from schools and families and such, or the people who are being trafficked, that this is where they can meet Jesus again. That in their embarrassment and shame, they can contemplate how Jesus was stripped in public and talk to him about that experience uh, and the humiliation that is parallel to his, especially keeping in mind his mother is there. She who made those clothes uh, is there with the other holy women. And this is something that people who have their images uh, some of these young people who do sexting, as they call it, taking pictures of themselves with no clothes and, and then posting it on their phones, they find that their images are distributed to other people. And they can talk to Christ on his cross, engage in a conversation of what the experience of that humiliation would be like. That it would be something for them to see that he being nailed to the cross is given up his divine power. He's engaged in the same kind of powerlessness that many of these young people have experienced and other victims, adult victims too. They find themselves overpowered by one or more strong people. And in that powerlessness, they are humiliated. This is where they can meet Christ in his powerlessness, in his being humbled by the, the soldiers uh, stripping the, this off. And when we consider this, we ought to remember St. Paul, who quoted a very ancient Christian hymn. This was a hymn already used in the early church. It is found in the, his letter to the Philippians, chapter 2. I especially want to focus on verses 7 and 8, where it said, But Jesus emptied himself taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on the cross. In that powerlessness, <coughs> Christ at, you know, takes on this issue of meeting other powerless people. And in this particular form of powerlessness to experience raising them up as they, their dignity is attacked by their own being stripped and humiliated and put on the internet, just as he was put on front of the gate of the city of Jerusalem on a public road. And this is something that I think would be well, well worth engaging 
the people who suffered that way with Christ stripped and nailed to a cross. This is where he can talk to them and understand their experience better than the rest of us can. And to find strength from him to not only understand their pain, but his suffering is the basis of healing their suffering. That's what we want to see happen here from our Lord. All right, we will stop there and I'd like to go to some of your questions. We have a caller on the line already. Uh, we have Linda in Ohio. Linda, what can we do for you? Uh, hi, Father. Um, I am 77 years old, and mm -hmm. I've suffered with anxiety and depression my whole life. Yeah. It's been extremely bad lately uh, to the point where I can hardly leave the house even to go to church. Every day I get up, and as soon as I get up, I say, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad. Mm -hmm. And when I do have to go out, I pray to the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. But I'm at a point now, I've been going to a psychologist, and they want to put me on medication. And mm -hmm. I'd like to know the Catholic Church's view of this. Does this mean that I'm I'm not being faithful enough? No. I no, know. not a, Linda. That's a wonderful question. Wonderful. I'm glad you asked it because, in there is a major difference between the kind of drug that a doctor prescribes for a condition like depression and chronic anxiety than there is from fentanyl and marijuana and a lot of other drugs. That there are certain drugs, I, I, I suspect that you'll notice when, uh, you, if you follow your doctor's prescription, that the drug for depression will not give you a high or a buzz or something. It, what it's normally doing is addressing an imbalance inside the body chemistry, and I believe that's something to do with the, 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 uh, body, the chemistry within the brain itself. And it's trying to correct a certain imbalance that helps a person dealing with chronic depression you know, be able to cope. Yeah, that it, it's something that would, um, you know, have a, uh, a, a bouncing effect that instead of making you high, will bring you to experience what most other people experience as normal. And that is a very different thing than take, taking, say, morphine or heroin or one of those other drugs that will destroy you. I assume, I think with very strong security, your psychologist is not going to give you a drug that uh, will destroy you. If you feel uncomfortable with the drug, that you, I, or with this possibility, you may want to, you know, find out from your doctor or, and you have, always have this right, to consult with another psychiatrist about how the drug 
uh, works. So this is something that uh, would be very important um, so that you feel comfortable. You know, you can consult with other medical doctors or psychiatrists, but it, it should be from, from the people I know who have taken such drugs that it brings you balance rather than buzz. And I think that's a, a very important thing. And, you know, I, I don't, I would treat it the way I would treat, uh, say, the use of various cancer curing uh, drugs. Some of them are very difficult and cause tremendous pain, but they can, in many cases, not all, but in many cases, help a person overcome cancer. So if they can overcome cancer, then uh, uh, even though they bring a person to sometimes almost the brink of death, I mean, some of them are very, very difficult, but you can come back from it. You take that, that kind of risk. I would look at those the same way. So that, uh, and you know, what you want to do in that case is thank God for the medicine and go forward with that, okay? And we'll keep you in our prayers too, Linda. That's for sure. Let's now go over to Dominic in the great state of California. Dominic, what can we do for you? Oh, thank you, Father, for taking my call. Sure. I, since Jesus was both God and man, did mm -hmm. he have a soul? Mm -hmm. And is the soul and the spirit the same thing? When we die... Is our soul leaves the body, is that also our spirit, the spirit that makes me, me, me? Yeah, great question, Dominic. A couple things. First, the church has been absolutely clear uh, in various councils. I think Chalcedon uh, might also be in the Second Council of Constantinople, but that Jesus Christ does have a human soul. At that's part of being human. And so th th there's no doubt of that. In fact, that um, it, it says that, you know, after he died, if you take a look uh, at the reading that we had this last Sunday, if you're in the Roman Rite, uh, the, the readings from the Roman Rite this past Sunday come from 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 and following. And it's said that in, uh, and see, here's where the, the words for spirit and soul are sometimes used almost interchangeably because it says that in the spirit, his human spirit, he went to the prison and preached to all the souls that had died prior to his crucifixion. So all the people who had died and gone to this other state, uh, in the Old Testament, they called it Sheol. In the Greek, they called it Hades or Hades. And in, um, in fact, in the Norse mythology and Germanic mythology, it was called Helle. That's where we get our word hell from. Helle was their term for this place of the souls that died that didn't go to heaven. Um, but because they couldn't, it wasn't opened yet. So Christ went there in his spirit. But you, you, 
you see that there is a distinction made by St. Paul between the spirit and the soul. So, for instance, he, the, the word for soul uh, in St. Paul is the word psyche. We get psyche from that or psychology. And then the spirit uh, is the pneuma. It's a different word. And Paul distinguishes the two. The, it seems that he uses psyche or psyche to refer to that aspect of human life that is uh, where your emotions are. You know, there's a lot of your human uh, activities. Uh, your, but the spirit seems to refer to uh, what other theologians call the supernatural existential. They, philosophers come up with a lot of words. And uh, by this, it means that aspect of the human being where you meet God. Where, when the Holy Spirit enters us, it's in our human spirit. But that's St. Paul making that distinction. I don't always see that distinction because in the Old Testament, they never clearly defined it. Um, they seem to refer to the soul as that which keeps body and spirit together um, somehow, but they don't explain it much. So it's kind of, uh, the Old Testament was very vague and the New Testament uh, is not always that much clearer on defining it. Uh, but what we do believe is that a, uh, Jesus did have a human soul. Um, his soul went and preached to all the dead souls, the people died before him. And then in the resurrection is reunited with his body. And that we believe also that our eternal soul will be reunited with our resurrected bodies at the end of time and that will be raised from the dead as well, because to be fully human is to be body and soul. They go together. So that's where our hope is, but also it's a hope grounded in the fact that Christ was raised. So that's about as much as I know. Maybe people who, other people know more than I do. I'm sure there, in fact, I'm sure there are, but that's as much insight as I can give. All right. I need to take a break. We'll come back with more questions and comments, so please stay with us. want to invite you to join me tomorrow night at 8 p.m. for EWTN Live. We will be speaking with Dr. Anthony Clark, who's been on the show before, and we are going to discuss the similarities and the differences between Buddhist doctrine and Catholic theology. 
And we'll also take a look at the way that their very divergent paths have been sort of muddied by overly ambitious ecumenism and also by modern secularism and sometimes by people trying to avoid you know, making their Christian commitment in some cases. So we'll take a look at that, okay? Look for, I really look forward to the discussion. He wrote a nice book on that. In fact, uh, he wrote that because the last time he was on my show, I suggested that he ought to write a book like that to help us understand Buddhism better. So God bless him, he did that, and we'll um, take a look at it. All right, let's take a look at an email from Daniel. It says, Dear Father Mitch, is the story about Lucifer getting kicked out of heaven supposed to be a literal story or just a figurative story to symbolize how evil came about in man? If it is a true story, one thing never made sense to me. Isn't everything supposed to be in harmony and perfect in heaven? Why would there have been any dissidence or ego in heaven on the part of Lucifer in order to defy God? The only thing I can think of is that it was possibly God's will for the devil to come to be. And if angels can defy God while in heaven, wouldn't we be able to as well? Daniel. Well, Daniel, a couple things. Um, first of all, I do believe that Satan was kicked out of heaven because he went into rebellion against God. For one thing, we see his defeat at the hands of St. Michael and his angels described very wonderfully in Revelation chapter 12 and also in the uh, letter of Jude, we see reference to this. Now, your question, how is it possible that uh, there would be a uh, rebellion in heaven where everything is in harmony and perfect? How could that rebellion arise? That, I think, is one of the difficulties. Think back on this past Sunday. Uh, we, this is the cycle of the Gospel of St. Mark. And St. Mark has the shortest description of the temptations of our Lord Jesus. But the other Gospels, Luke and Matthew, have more full uh, descriptions of that temptation. Now, think about this. If God the Son can be tempted, then why would we think that Satan couldn't be? I mean, think about that aspect. And then we, uh, th there's a great point made in the catechism that temptation is something that shows us for what we are. Some temptation is permitted. 
so that we can see what we really are. And we don't see described in any detail what kind of temptation might have been possible for the spirits in heaven. We don't know what that might have been. But most folks have supposed, and it is a supposal, that the temptation was one of pride by which the evil one thought it was not worth redeeming the future human race by God becoming a man. It was too humiliating in that in some way or other he thought himself above such humiliation. His sin was primarily one of pride, thinking of himself to be smarter than God's plan. Now, we, I think we could say anyway, with fair confidence that there are a lot of people that don't like the way God does stuff. They dislike it very much. And they, um, you know, try to come up with their own better proposal that, as we see in retrospect, usually doesn't work out so well. And that's the same with Satan. Now, once an angel makes a decision, then it cannot be undone. They don't have the, the see, that's why their temptation and fall becomes permanent as pure spirit. They don't have the back and forth we have. Sometimes, our, as our Lord said, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. They don't have flesh. So once they make a decision in their mind, that's it for eternity. They can't be undone. Uh, it's like, uh, I don't know why, but years ago this image came that they're sort of like poured concrete. Once you pour concrete into a mold, you're not going to reshape it. That's its permanent shape. And the angels can't undo what they're like. So, uh, whereas we humans, you know, go back and forth and with various graces, we can have that. When we go to heaven and we are, uh, go through the judgment and we are shown to have God, God's approval and that we enter into salvation for eternity, then we too, as pure spirit, have a permanent decision and that cannot be undone. But at some point, they had that choice. Okay. All right, then I have a, an email from Richard in Winter Haven, Florida, who asks, are deacons allowed to give a blessing to those people in the communion line not receiving Holy Communion? Apparently, yes, uh, canon law allows that, so they can do so. Uh, we do it very simply in the Maronite rite. We simply take the ciborium and place it on the head, whether a child or an adult, and pray that our Lord bless them. You know, and that, that it's the Eucharist that does the blessing if they cannot receive. But, you know, the, the deacon can give a blessing. 
And then uh, Martin in Suffolk, Virginia asks, I really appreciate your scholarly explanations of Old Testament scripture. Recently during mass, Genesis 5, 21 to 24 was the reading. It appears to suggest that Enoch was taken by God to heaven alive. Seems to be a special status for a human. Yes, only he and Elijah. Uh, would he have been born with original sin? Yes. Seems strange as even Mary, mother of Jesus, had to die prior to being assumed into heaven. Martin and Suffolk. Um, yeah, it, it, it is an odder thing, but you know, it, it seems that he was taken up because as the scripture passage mentions, he walked with God. And so it, it doesn't mean that he's taken into heaven. Again, he still, the heaven wasn't open yet, but he and Elijah could be in this, uh, sometimes uh, like our Lord said, the bosom of Abraham. Uh, he calls it in Matthew, excuse me, in Luke 16, in the story of Lazarus and the rich man Dives. But apart from that, we don't know too much about it. There is a book of Enoch that was written to try to speculate more about it, but that's just speculation in that part of Scripture. All right, may the Lord bless you all and keep you and cause His face to shine upon you. May He lead you in all of your ways by His peace. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And again, this network is brought to you by you. That's how our Lord Jesus inspired Mother Angelica to found this network. So we ask you now, as we always do, and she did, to please keep us in between your gas bill, your electric bill, and your cable bill, and we'll be able to pay our bills too. God bless you and thank you. Thank you.